Now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Wash daily from nose tip to tail tip. Drink deeply, but never too deep. And remember, the night is for hunting, and forget not the day is for sleep. The jackal may follow the tiger, but cub, when thy whiskers are grown, remember the wolf is a hunter. Go forth and get food of thine own. Keep peace with lords of the jungle, the tiger, the panther, and bear. And trouble not, hath I the silent, and mock not the boar in his lair. When pack meets with pack in the jungle, and neither will go from the trail, lie down till the leaders have spoken, it may be fair words shall prevail. When ye fight with a wolf of the pack, ye must fight him alone and afar, lest others take part in the quarrel, and the pack be diminished by war. The lair of the wolf is his refuge, and where he has made him his home. Not even the head wolf may enter, not even the council may come. The lair of the wolf is his refuge, but where he has digged it too plain, the council shall send him a message, and so he shall change it again. If ye kill before midnight, be silent, and wake not the woods with your bay, lest ye frighten the deer from the crop, and your brothers go empty away. Ye may kill for yourselves and your mates and your cubs as they need, and ye can. But kill not for pleasure of killing, and seven times never kill man. If ye plunder his kill from a weaker, devour not all in thy pride. Pack right is the right of the meanest, so leave him the head and the hide. The kill of the pack is the meat of the pack. Ye must eat where it lies. And no one may carry away of that meat to his lair, or he dies. The kill of the wolf is the meat of the wolf. He may do what he will. But, till he has given permission, the pack may not eat of that kill. Cubright is the right of the yearling. From all of his pack he may claim full gorge when the killer is eaten, and none may refuse him the same. Lair right is the right of the mother. From all of her year she may claim, one haunch of each kill for her litter, and none may deny her the same. Cave right is the right of the father, to hunt by himself for his own. He is freed of all calls to the pack, he is judged by the council alone. Because of his age and his cunning, because of his gripe and his paw, in all that the law leaveth open the word of your head wolf is law. Now these are the laws of the jungle, and many and mighty are they. But the head and the hoof of the law, and the haunch and the hump, is obey. The Law of the Jungle, Rudyard Kipling. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I said those who bring evil against me will not prosper. I said those who stand in the dark can never come into the light.
All praise be to the one and only true God, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament belongs to Christ and his people alone. Why there can never be a Judeo-Christian anything by Pastor Andrew Isker, July 8th, 2022. And before we get into the article, I saw a meme the other day that said, you know, while you can't have Judeo-Christian anything, you can have plenty of Judeo-things like and they gave a, a whole list that included things like judeo pedophilia judeo democratic party judeo uh federal reserve judeo usury things like that so but you can't have judeo christian anything and here's why pastor andrew isker with the explanation within conservative circles particularly among evangelicals in that court it is not uncommon to hear the phrase judeo-christian this expression often modifies something that pertains to the history or tradition of Christendom. Most people think nothing of it. They are familiar enough with the Bible to know that the Old Testament is about Israel and the Hebrews, and the New Testament is about Christ incarnating to Israel and going to all the nations. But the reality is that Christianity was not formed out of this thing called Judaism. Christianity is the true biblical religion. And Judaism is the religion formed after faithful Jews and believing Gentiles were united to Jesus Christ. Objecting to Judeo-modifying Christianity may seem pedantic. It may seem like much ado about nothing. What is the big deal if Judeo-modifies Christian? After all, it's just one additional word. But the question of whether Christ was co-eternal with the Father or was created was literally over a single letter, the letter iota. Words matter. Definitions matter. They carry tremendous significance. The problem with the phrase is that it reveals our misunderstanding of what the Old Testament is and who the Old Testament people of God were in the Old Testament. The phrase reveals our misunderstanding of the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ. Most importantly, it reveals our misunderstanding of the relationship between biblical Israel and modern Jewish identity. To start, we should back up and understand some grand themes of the Bible. Right after God dispersed the nations at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, he called a descendant of Shem to go to the land of Canaan, Genesis 12. He then made promises to this man that he and his descendants would possess this land, Genesis 15 and that this promised seed would come through him, Genesis 17, and they were instructed to keep a special sign of this promise in the act of circumcision, verses 10 through 14. However, this man Abraham and his descendants were not the only people who believed in God. Throughout the Old Testament, other people also knew of our God, either by the faith passed down from the time of Noah or through the ministry of Abraham's descendants. The entire time you had both the priestly people through whom the promised Messiah would come, and also believers within the nations of the world, such as Melchizedek, Genesis 14, Jethro, Exodus 2, 
Rahab, Joshua 2, the Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10, Naaman the Syrian, 2 Kings 5, the people of Nineveh, Jonah 3 through 4, and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4. Throughout the Old Testament, there are believing Gentiles. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles are constantly bumping into Gentile God-fearers. Some examples, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, Luke 7, 1 through 10, Acts 10, Acts 13, 26, Acts 17, 4, and 17. That division between Jew and Gentile was coming to a close with the ending of the Old Covenant order. By the time of Pentecost in Acts 2, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, the Babylonic order is reversed and the Jew-Gentile distinction is torn down. The nations all have one tongue again, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. The nations not hubristically building a tower to the heavens, but instead bowing before the one who has ascended into heaven and thereby exalting his holy name. The union of Jew and Gentile into the church is perhaps the main theme of the New Testament. It is unquestionably the main theme of the book of Romans. Many people read Romans as though it is primarily a theological treatise. Still, the theology of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans is an outworking of the issue of Israel and the Gentiles being joined into one body. Paul gives a defense of the justice of God. He goes on to write about how God would harden the hearts of Israelites so that they would demand the murder of Christ and thus bring about the salvation of the entire world. Romans 9-11 through 11. By the time he gets to chapter 11, he explains the union of Jew and Gentile as the covenant people united in Christ. Romans 11.26 He also tells of a future conversion of Israel before God brings judgment down upon the old covenant order and Babylon the Great, which is Jerusalem. Revelation 18 Just as Paul prophesied, there indeed was a mass conversion of Jews right before the Romans came to destroy Israel. God used his salvation of the Gentiles to provoke the full remnant of Israel to repent and believe in the Messiah, just as Paul said he would when he said, and so all Israel will be saved. Quote-unquote, all Israel is the full sum of the Jews who confessed Christ before God sent the judgment upon Jerusalem prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24 and revealed in the book of Revelation. Covenant-breaking Israel and its leprous temple were destroyed. Faithful Israel, united by the faithful Israelite Jesus Christ, the heir of all the promises given to Abraham, Moses, and David, was also joined to the Gentile believers. Far from being a replacement for Israel, it is a fulfillment no one would say that a family with five natural children that adopts a baby is replacing the natural children, even if one of the other children, or rather, even if one of the older children ran away and disowned his parents. The faithful remnant of Israel, the true Israel, was preserved. It was joined to Christ along with Gentile believers. When God sent the Assyrians and Babylonians to destroy covenant-breaking Israel and Judah, centuries before Christ, no one would ever think to say, to the idolaters being destroyed, don't worry guys, all those promises God made to Abraham are irrevocable. You'll be fine. No, the prophet Jeremiah told them explicitly not to look at these promises to protect them from the consequences 
of their disobedience. Jeremiah 7, 3-4 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. The promises are irrevocable to Israel, and Israel is defined in terms of the covenant with God. That covenant directs Israel to join with his son, and if Israel fails to do it, they are no different from their fathers. Rather, they are no different than their fathers, who God destroyed and sent into exile for their idolatry. Yet God preserves a remnant, and his covenant and its promises remain intact. That is the point of Romans 11. What about the Jews today? It is impossible to overstate the importance of the historic cataclysm that was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. That was God's conclusive, final judgment on the Old Covenant. It's over. No more sacrifices, only the sacrifice. His covenant and His promises exclusively belong to the true Israel, Jesus Christ. There was no more priesthood, only the true high priest, Jesus Christ. The only thing that remained was the traditions of the scribes and the elders, the very traditions that were crafted to allow Israel to violate God's law, the very traditions Christ demanded Israel repent over, and the very traditions that provoked them to reject him and put him to death. That is what modern Judaism was formed out of. And really is even a further bastardization of, because it's... Uh, it's shaped by the Talmud, which, yes, builds off of those traditions, but goes much further. This was not a correct understanding of the scriptures, because if they truly had the eyes to see, they would have comprehended the majesty and divinity in Christ Jesus. So the claim that the Old Testament came from Judaism is patently false. Judaism is a new religion. Right, it's, it's from the Babylonian Talmud and other Talmuds made up by satanic rabbis. Judaism is a new religion created after the Old Covenant was destroyed. It is a faith that is built out of the codified traditions of the elders that Christ forcefully condemned. The faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David is the faith of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The Old Testament belongs to the cult formed after Christ called Judaism as much as the Bible belongs to cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Again, the Old Testament belongs to the cult formed after Christ called Judaism. Actually, let me read that again. Get the rhythm of the sentence right. The Old Testament belongs to the cult. that was formed after Christ, and that is called Judaism. As much as the Bible belongs to cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Modern Jews today are no more God's chosen special people than Muslims or Buddhists. That faithful remnant of Israel united to Jesus Christ are God's chosen special people, not the branches that have been grafted out of the olive tree. Modern Jews are not Old Testament-only pre-Christians. Judaism today is a modern LARP religion, no different than guys who dress up and howl out in the woods to Odin and Thor. 
If the church were to understand this, that modern Ashkenazis and Sephardi are not the special people, but no different than Ghanaians, Koreans, or Brazilians, we may actually be able to evangelize them effectively. Well, and they actually are different because their entire identity is built around having killed Jesus. So it's a unique, it's a unique kind of paganism. It's a uniquely arrogant kind of paganism. They are not the special people that don't need Jesus. Their religion is fake and a bad joke. It is a false religion like all other false religions. Only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ will save them. Far from being anti-Semitic, a proper understanding of this shows heartfelt concern for their souls. If you have the compassion that a Christian must, a Christian must have for the lost, you need to understand that their religion is not just like ours, but without the New Testament. If they reject Jesus, they reject the Old Testament that is all about him. All mankind need to believe in him or they will perish in their sins. This is why Judeo-Christian is such a problem. Judaism is a new, made-up religion by those who rejected Jesus Christ. It is not the precursor to Christianity. It post-dates Christianity. By using that term, we are reinforcing the idea that their religion is just like ours, except they don't believe in Jesus yet, when in reality it is a new religion formed out of the total rejection of the Son of God. The very best thing the church can do for modern Jews is to heighten the distinction between Christianity and their false religion. Only then can they come to know salvation in Christ. Andrew Isker is the pastor of Fourth Street Evangelical Church in Wasica, Minnesota. Graduate of Minnesota State University and Gravefires Hall Ministerial Training School, he has served churches in Missouri, West Virginia, and Minnesota. He is the author of the forthcoming book, The Boniface Option. Andrew, his wife, Kara, and their five children reside in his hometown of Wasica, Minnesota. And he can be found on Gab at Boniface Option. Andrew Isker, I believe, is now serving in some kind of editorial capacity for Gab News. Uh, so that would be news.gab.com. Just to point out, this is this is the kind of stuff that Torba and Gab publishes on their platform. You couldn't have a more night and day different social media approach between Gab and corporations like Twitter or Facebook. Gab is explicitly a Christian nationalist platform, unapologetically so, uh, and it's it's beautiful to see. Torba is is. Uh, you know, is doing great things. And in this decade of the victorious reaction, uh, where we actually ascend over our foes and reassert dominance, men like Torba, who showed bravery early on, uh, will be rightly rewarded, uh, as well as faithful pastors like Esker, too few pastors willing to speak the truth. Yeah, modern Judaism is... Uh, a satanic cult defined not by the Old Testament but the Talmud the Babylonian and other Talmuds and and that's why you know that's one of the reasons why it's it's so unfortunate when uh, you know messianic Judaism is praised as almost like an 
you know, a superior form of Christianity, a, a more biblically rooted form of Christianity. No, it's 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 an attempt to blend Christianity with Talmudic Judaism, which uh, you know would be like trying to blend Christianity with any other cult popular today. Um, so, especially if you if you look at the Ashkenazis, not only can you not trace them to the Old Testament, uh, you, you can't, neither can you trace them genetically to the saints, the, the early, the early saints of the church found in the Old Testament. They're, they're most likely uh, a people that can be traced back to Khazaria, uh, modern day Ukraine. So, and, and there's a lot of you know, if you are a people looking to subvert um, the West, it is advantageous to connect yourself to the primary text of the West. Um, the more you can do that, the more space you can provide for yourself, the more cultural respect you can win for yourself, even as you try to subvert the host nation. Anyway, that's from Andrew Isker. Really appreciate his stuff. You can find him on Gab or at Twitter at Boniface Option. All right, people. Hope you're doing well. I'm over here trying to be a lifelong learner. You know what I mean? An open-minded, lifelong learner. That's what it's about. And so uh, a listener sent me an infographic to help me be better educated about the way of the world. So I'm going to process this infographic alongside you. We're going to look at it together and learn together. First, moving from top left to the right, so on and so forth. These are statements to help me deconstruct purity culture. Purity culture taught us that shaming others was loving. And so the assertion there is that shaming others is not loving. Shame, therefore, uh, shame itself is a negative. You can't associate it with love. The problem with that is that shame is to the soul what pain is to the body. Right? So, uh... If you are doing, let's say you have a, uh, a motor pattern that's suboptimal, that's bad. Over time, you might get pain. That's your body telling you to stop it. If you don't stop, you might end up with irreparable injury. You know, you might become disabled. Pain is a helpful warning to change your way, to repent. Uh, a parent might cause physical pain to a child as a way of instructing that child that the way of the child is errant. The child needs to repent, to turn, to change. Uh, and, and pain itself can be constructive to the body. Think about you know working out, for example. There's there's even good pain that motivates 
self-betterment. Shame is like that for the soul. Uh, We are not simply material beings. We are immaterial beings as well. And so... Um, there are, a, there's ways that man can give himself to that rightfully bring shame because the end of those ways is damnation. It's destruction. Your conscience feels shame for certain behavior patterns and that shame, like pain, is a good motivator to stop, right? So if you are an ugly fat lard and going out in public makes you ashamed your soul is telling you that it would prefer you to not be an ugly fat lard if you're a fag and you feel ashamed or if you are shamed by others it makes you feel bad that's your soul telling you to stop being a fag so actually shaming others can be loving. Hey fag, stop being a fag. Hey fat ass, stop being fat. Two good examples of effective shaming others. In in the context of purity culture, hey slut, stop sleeping around. Those are examples of loving shame. You deserve body autonomy. You deserve to feel freedom and safety in your body. You deserve body autonomy. You deserve to feel freedom and safety for your body. I guess where that that statement is going to go wrong is is an idea we just talked about this recently of freedom in in a libertarian sense, in a licentious sense, freedom to do whatever you want in and with your body is not actually freedom and and fundamentally it, it, this comes down to an anthropological assertion you are not your own you were created you are created you don't simply get to do whatever you want with your body you have the freedom to use your body and your mind and your strength your soul to obey the Lord and to submit to the hierarchy of his created order you can't just do whatever you want. Uh, you know, there are certain things that are actually destructive and bad for you. There are limits. And so you, you actually do, in order to be safe in your body, you have to submit to your limits. Uh, you know, uh, going underwater for an hour without an air tank, you'll die, right? There's a, there's a limit to your body there. So actually the understanding or the assertion of what freedom means in this infographic undermines safety. Uh, Deconstruction is not a brand new movement. That's true. Uh, Deconstruction just simply goes back to the garden where Satan said, did God really say? Well, did he really say? He's just deconstructing the law of God. Of course it's not new. Satan's wiles are not new. Sex isn't the enemy. Purity culture is. Uh, False dichotomy, right? Uh, Defiled sex is a primary cultural 
enemy. A pure and undefiled sex is a great gift. So, you know, go the way of AIDS and monkeypox, or go the way of great fruitfulness, great pleasure, great intimacy, great multiplication. In a sense, you have the freedom to choose. Uh, you don't have the freedom to not be punished. And and obviously, right, so, you know, sex isn't the enemy. Well, uh, unqualified, uh, do you really want to say that unqualified, right? Because rape is a kind of sex. Uh, pedophilia, pedophilic acts, a kind of sex. So everyone is going to have some kind of qualifier to what sex is good and what sex is bad. And the way of wisdom is to let the creator of sex determine the scope of good, healthy sex. Purity culture taught us that pronouns were more harmful than homophobia and transphobia. You know, unless the guy is like 300 pounds and you're alone in a locker room with him, you're not, you really shouldn't be afraid of gays. Uh, and, you know, even in that scenario, as long as you stay strapped, you won't get the clap. Um, no, it's more, it's more, less of a fear, more of a repulsion, finding gays disgusting, uh, gross. Um, it's not a fear of trannies. Though I will say, you know, I was in a, a London bar one time watching rugby and a beautiful woman got up to use the bathroom and it's only then that I realized that she was a guy. So in that sense, yeah, I'm kind of afraid. Uh, you know, but uh, apart from that sense, uh, no, they're just disgusting. Uh, yeah, I want to punch them in the face or you know, hit them with a baseball bat, but I'm not afraid of them. It's more of a repulsion. Um, so, and pronouns, you know, they're, they're saying basically, oh, you, you know, purity culture is not going to allow you to use, use a pronoun that this, this guy's asking for, right? And this came up when I was doing college ministry at George Washington University. Uh, this female student, Shouldn't have been at a college in the first place, but she was there in, in some kind of art con context. And uh, she had a friend being in an art world, you know, that was asking to be called by a male name with male pronouns. Well, maybe it was like a male name and like Ziz and Zer pronouns. Uh, I honestly can't remember. I think it might have been Ziz or Zer. But... You know, so this girl asked me, it's, you know, it's funny because like there were other college ministry employees that she was closer to that had a longer, longer standing relationship with her, but she knew that I was the most conservative one. So she asked me because uh, she couldn't help herself. She at the same time wanted to know the truth and didn't want to know. There was this tension of uh, bravery and fear. She was truly brave. Uh, well, you know, she was a brave girl and asked me, but you know, I think she was conflicted because I think she knew exactly what I was going to say. But that aside, uh, 
you know, it's one to use fake pronouns. Well, so uh, language is tied to truth. It's tied to fellowship with God. It's tied to dominion in the world. And so to use, intentionally use false language is to commit treason against God because you're, you're basically taking the dominion he's given you and wielding it to further the purposes of Satan, right? You're a vice regent in the world. And by intentionally using your language for deceit, especially in categorizing mankind uh, and, and lying about male-female, you are acting like a, a rebel in his world. Um, and then it's to the other person, so you're, you're betraying God. But then to the person you're lying about, you're, you're hating that individual by encouraging, um, encouraging a falsehood. Uh, shame is the root of both purity culture and diet culture. Don't be a whore. Don't be a fat whale. Okay? Uh, it's pretty simple. And yeah, I guess shame is integral to both. And that's a good thing. The problem with crisis pregnancy centers, that's, I think that's something that I, so this is an infographic of infographics, so it's something I could have clicked into and gotten more. But, uh, yeah, no problem with pregnancy centers. Yep, sometimes people are from chaotic environments, and it is helpful to have considerate folks come alongside you as you are pregnant and approaching birth. And that's a good thing. There you go. skip that one because that's another subcategory your pant size is not a reflection of your worth uh you know without you know it just depends what you mean right we're all made in the image of God and God loves fat and skinny people uh the reality is you know you can hate a girl or love a girl okay and well it uh girls the, the glory of women is beauty. And beauty is a multifaceted idea, right? There's different kinds of beauty. And the, in one sense of the idea of worth, the most valuable girl in the world, you know, the one for whom, you know, men would, you know, upturn everything. Uh, the most valuable girl in the world is going to be the girl who is the most beautiful as a collective score. Right, so if you take all the kinds of beauties and you rank it out, right, the girl who ranks highest is going to be the most valuable girl, the, uh, the most desired girl, the most cared for girl, because she's going to be the most glorious girl. And so while there are different kinds of beauty, beauty includes physical beauty, and fat is not beautiful. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into beauty, but health and fitness is part of that. Um, having a good... Uh, breast wa uh, waist hip ratio is part of that it's physically pleasing to behold and if you're fat you don't have a good BWH ratio 
Um, and so, yeah, you know, if you really hate somebody or you know, so from the girl side, you want to make yourself feel good, have some fat friends, tell them that, you know, they're beautiful and they don't need to change and it'll make you feel better about yourself because you're a loser. Um, you know, if you're in a position of authority, a father, a pastor, a teacher, a friend, uh, it, you really should be telling your fat female friends specifically, um, to lose weight because the fatter they are, the harder they are, the harder time they're going to have in finding a spouse and the woman's highest vocation in life is going to be played out in marriage and motherhood. And so if she wants to be married and wants to be a mom, she should lose weight, right? If you've got a girl you know who is struggling to get married and she's a quality girl, right? And she just, why aren't guys asking me out? Uh, lose weight. It, it genuinely will help. Jokes aside, incendiary language aside, provocative language aside, l- listen to me on this one, all right? If you happen to be listening to this, you're a quality girl, you love the Lord, you've got a good character, you know how to cook and clean, you want to be a wife and a mom, you really do want to be a wife and a mom. I am telling you this in kindness. Lose weight. It will make it easier. It's not necessarily going to solve all your problems, right? But you're going to realize that you catch a guy's eye a lot more. Even if you're plain, right? And you can't help that. You can't help what your face looks like. God gave you that face, right? And so you don't want to just, you don't want to be mad at God. God gave what gave you whatever face you have. Some girls have great faces. Some girls have other than great faces. You can't control how fat you are. And so, uh, yeah, so, right, tall guys have, you know, greater value in a sense than, they're desired more, more desirable, greater value than uh, short guys, right? So if you look at, so if a guy's um, glory is strength, there's different kinds of strength, that includes physical strength, look at the strong men. Strongest men in the world, are they tall or are they short? They're tall. They've got a greater capacity to move mass because they have more mass. Uh, So height is a good thing, right? Well, I can't control my height. Like, you can't control your face. But I can train. I can make myself as strong as I can be. And you can lose weight and be as uh, well-figured as you can be. It's, It's the same idea. It doesn't help you in your life to just lie to you. You want somebody to lie to you, that's not that's not what you're going to get here. There, there are plenty of girls I know that want nothing more than to get married, and they are not violently prioritizing losing weight, and that's on them. They might get a low-value guy that's desperate, but why would you want that for somebody you care about? Why would you want them to get stuck with a low-value guy? You want, you want them to be hitched to a high-value guy because that will be better. And guys, you know, guys can get away with being fat more than girls, but it's not good for your health. Uh, so the, right, the less capable you are, there's, then there's different kinds of fat for guys, but right, you want to be capable. The less capable you are, the less uh, valuable you are. 
And so if you are fat to the degree that you are being, you are finding yourself unable to do this or that, you need to lose some weight. Virginity is a social construct. Virginity is a social construct, as is the hymen. <laughs> the hymen is an idea fabricated by the patriarchy. It's not real. The sexual act, a social construct. Race, a social construct. Rape, a social construct. Pedophilia, a social construct. It's all a social construct. You are not a stumbling block. Well, if you are a whore, then you are a stumbling block. Thus saith the Lord. All right. I That's the infographic. I feel more educated for it. Again, lifelong learner. Glad to learn alongside you.